0: The Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 13th chapter. Jesus put before the crowds another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. "'Let both of them grow together until the harvest, "'and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, "'Collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, "'but gather the wheat into my barn.' "'Then he left the crowds and went into the house, "'and his disciples approached him, saying, "'Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field.' "'He answered, "'The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man.' The field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evil doers, and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone with ears listen. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Last week I shared with you some thoughts on the pursuit of happiness. A happiness that does not come from just enjoying the transitory pleasures that come with the stuff we accumulate, our toys. Or maybe wealth or status or power. You no, know, last week we talked about happiness with a capital H. And I shared also with you some thoughts on happiness with a capital H from Aristotle. How he characterized it as having inside a good spirit. And then how he associated happiness with the good life. The good life, a life that consists of the virtues good, wholesome habits of character, things like courage and temperance and friendliness and generosity and wittiness. I shared too with you the Greek tradition of the fragmented personality, how they believe there is being waged in all human beings a struggle, a struggle, a conflict between the upper, better, higher nature, the mind, the intellect, and the lower often overpowering nature the flesh the flesh with its passions and its desires and i shared with you with that struggle in view the greeks and romans placed a great deal of emphasis on the ethic of what they called enkrateia or self-mastery self-control that comes through teaching that comes through discipline And that with this self-mastery, one could be set free from the tyranny of the passions. And so follow the dictates of one's upper and better nature. And in doing that, step right into happiness with a capital H. I talked about how in Romans 7, we hear a cry for freedom. Sounded loudly and passionately by a Gentile God-fearer who has been looking for happiness through the study of the Torah. Unfortunately, even after coming to know the good as it is expressed in God's holy law, that Gentile still finds himself unable to do the good. So at the end of Romans 7, we hear this Gentile struggling with this issue, a Gentile torn between his will to follow the law and finding instead, finding it all too easy to just feed the appetites and desires of the flesh. And so the Gentile cries out, asking for a savior Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Last week we heard how Paul answered that cry, that plea. He rang the old liberty bell loud and clearly. We saw how in Romans 8, Paul let the Gentiles who were part of that congregation in Rome know that through Christ and the indwelling of the promised spirit, they had been granted three wonderful freedoms. Freedom from the tyranny of the flesh. Freedom from the law of sin. Freedom from the law of death. Freedom, freedom, freedom. Three freedoms. And Paul let them know they're standing before God has changed. And just as importantly, they have been changed on the inside. They have now been empowered by the gift of the Spirit. And with the Spirit, Paul says, comes a new disposition, a new constitution, a new set of desires, a new set of virtues, godly and righteous habits of character, which Paul will name frequently in his letters as he does in Galatians when he writes, But the fruit of the Spirit, the virtues of the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-mastery. And against such things there is no law. Romans 7 and 8 are all about freedom. They are to be read together as one piece. And when you read them that way together, they make perfect sense given that background of the Greco-Roman moral tradition and the tradition of the fragmented personality. Romans 7, a voice cries out for salvation and deliverance. And in Romans 8, we have the corresponding Declaration of Independence. That Paul would use so many Greek traditions and themes in Romans to speak of these freedoms, this abiding happiness is not surprising, is it? After all, he's writing to Greek-speaking converts, Gentiles. And let me make this point. My reading of Romans 7 and 8. It's not my own. I can't take credit for it. It goes way, way back, this reading, to the early church fathers, such as Origen. I only threw in a few enhancements of my own and a few from more recent commentators. But that's how the early church read Romans, especially Romans 7 and 8. But as time went on, and the distance grew between Paul's own historical context, the context of that church in Rome, interpretations of these two chapters changed. Changed. thanks primarily to a 5th century monk, priest, bishop, doctor of the church. We know him as St. Augustine of Hippo. He was fascinated, Augustine was, with Paul's letters, especially Romans. And he wrote about Romans frequently early in his career shortly after his conversion Augustine taught that Romans 7 depicted as I said a struggle not one though faced by Christians but by non-believers and he admitted even he himself was engaged in this struggle prior to his conversion he was after all what we would call today a frat boy, as in fraternity boy. He liked to party. He loved the ladies. But that was his life before conversion. In his confessions, he speaks of the miracle of God's grace that came to him and set him free from his struggle against his passions especially his lust for pleasure. And he understood shortly after his conversion that Romans 7 and 8 describes his own personal journey, the journey from slavery to the flesh, to life, liberty, and happiness in the spirit. The story of Romans 7 and 8 It's the story of a great miracle, of God's grace triumphing over human weakness. He was the wretched man crying out for freedom, who was then graciously transformed. However, later in life, in his later writings... Augustine came to see his life, his journey, and that of Christians and non Christians around him in much darker tones. He came to emphasize the total sinfulness, the sinful nature of all humanity, that would later go by the name total depravity. He taught later that all humans by nature are essentially evil with no freedom to resist that evil. Any notion of freedom was just an illusion, he believed. Humans would always, always turn away from God and turn toward and embrace evil. He said that God had predestined only a select few to be saved, predestined, for salvation. And all the rest, well, Augustine believed that they would be sent to the never-ending fires of an eternal hell. And he had some funny math here that he did. He emphasized that those who are condemned, predestined for eternal punishment, is a much larger group. Those who are saved are Just a small, small fragment of all humanity. So all of you this way from this aisle, I think you're in the majority. Good luck. You're consigned to hell. And as for this group, only these first two here in front. The rest of you, you go over there. Augustine sort of cooked the numbers. Why did he do this? Because he was so fixated upon a God who was so angry with the first human and that first sin of disobedience. An anger that God carries through every generation. And because he's angry, God will supremely be district attorney, judge, jury, and executioner. In another work entitled The City of God, Augustine even takes great pleasure in the unforgiving nature of God and comes to emphasize the pains of eternal torment. Even unbaptized babies, in Augustine's view, go to that place of torment. Why? Because God is supremely judged And a very, very angry judge. Even as he stood before his flock as their pastor, as preacher, he just could not believe that the sheep assigned to his care in spite of their faith, in spite of their baptism, in spite of their good works. Well, as he looked at them, he was convinced most of them would burn for eternity. And not even the church with its sacraments, the sacrament of Holy Communion and baptism, could provide any, short, any sort of assurance of salvation. He believed that even the most pious Christians should always retain a reason to doubt their salvation to the very, very end. As for Romans 7 and 8, later in his life, Augustine reversed his earlier reading and understanding of the chapters, and he just separated the two. Separated them. In the part, the chapter he came to emphasize was the wretched man speaking in Romans 7. And Augustine became convinced that was Paul speaking, the Apostle Paul, describing his own ongoing deep struggle against sin. With Augustine, Paul's optimism, his declaration of freedom was replaced by a very, very deep kind of pessimism. And one that continues to this day in all denominations that stand within this tradition that flows from Augustine. His framework is very much alive and well today and is the dominant model for Christian life. What a model. A never-ending struggle, and a struggle in which you will lose more times than you will win. Mind you, the struggle's not against external enemies, it's the struggle within each of us. That's why even in the Lutheran tradition we say some things about sin. Most of you are familiar with the brief order for confession and forgiveness. Have you ever noted how we say, most merciful God, we confess that we are in bondage to sin? Chalk that up to Augustine. Paul would have us say something else, but that's another sermon. One recent writer has said, knowing Augustine's writings, his many writings, that his reading of Romans is, and I quote, the most sublime misreading of the letter in the history of Christian thought. As to why Augustine's theology and preaching took on such dark tones, well, here are a few possible explanations. The poor guy grew up in North Africa, and he only knew Latin. He did not know Greek. He could not read any of Paul's letters in their original tongue. He had to rely on translations in Latin from his good friend, St. Jerome. And Jerome was another fine piece of work. What Jerome bequeathed to the church, to Augustine, was a framework for understanding God that comes right out of a very strict system of justice, the Roman system emphasizing that God is essentially a judge and executioner. And Augustine hung out, I think, a few too many years with another religious group, another faith, another practice, later called heretics, the Manichaeans, who taught that anything physical, anything fleshly, is absolutely and totally evil. And then he also fell in love with another Greek philosopher, Plato. And that philosophy gave him a very intense yearning to escape this world because it is so transitory and so fragile and so broken and so damaged. And then lastly, like every theologian I have ever known, when theologians argue against heretics with all good intentions, mind you, they almost always take an extreme position that matches the extreme position of the heresy against which they are arguing. Not all theology is good theology, you see. Well, Augustine emphasized the extreme. And what he did was he cracked the Liberty Bell. He cracked it just like the Liberty Bell that was rung in Philadelphia many, many times through the years. There was a day, I believe, in February in 18-something. They were going to ring it to celebrate the birthday of George Washington, and it cracked and was never heard again. Augustine cracked Paul's wonderful Liberty Bell. Or if that's too far for you, too much of a stretch, he certainly changed the tune of it. Uh, Pete Enns has a website I follow. It's devoted to Scripture, and you know I love Scripture. And he posted his this conclusion in regard to Augustine. Augustine really messed things up when he commented on Paul's letter to the Romans. And so perhaps Christians today should just move on. I agree. Enough of Augustine. Let's go back to good old St. Paul. Paul was happy, I've told you, to use a number of themes from the Greek and Roman moral discourse. He was familiar with that tradition, so too his readers. But Paul also was familiar with a wonderful story, a long-cherished Jewish narrative found in the books of the Old Testament The story of the people of Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the new and God given promised land. That old story of deliverance, salvation, transformation provides the backbone for almost everything Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8. In short, he takes that old Exodus narrative, the story of independence, and he applies it to the people of God in Christ Jesus. So here, according to my favorite British commentator, N.T. Wright, this is how it works. In Romans 6, Paul speaks of the waters and he says Christians, like the sons of Israel, have passed through the waters from slavery to freedom. The Israelites passed through the Red Sea. Christians pass through the waters of baptism, from death and slavery to life. In Romans 7, we hear about the wonderful gift of the law. Christians have been given the Torah as well, as did those Israelites of old standing before God at Mount Sinai. Israelites, Christians, both given a wonderful map to happiness. And then in Romans 8, there is this gracious proclamation, the gift of the Spirit, the promise of resurrection. And so, like Israel of old, Christians are on a journey from their status as former slaves home to a new and wonderful promised land. We are on a long journey, we Christians, Paul says, like the Israelites of old, making our way through a wilderness to a new and better place. Romans 6, 7, and 8. Paul's version, revised version, of an old story. The story of life, liberty, and the discovery of happiness. Well, this journey... This real journey that all of us are on in our earthly lifetimes, will it be easy? No, I don't think so. Just like Israel of old, we'll take a few detours from time to time. We'll stumble. We'll trip ourselves up. So there'll be difficulties faced on the way to this land flowing with milk and honey, this land of happiness. But will the journey always be marked by missteps? Never ending failure? Disaster? Tragedy? Punishment? Crushing uncertainty? Do we continue this journey forever fearful that we may perhaps be left to die in the wilderness? Thrown off and under the bus? I don't think so. No, our journey will be different, says Paul. Because we travel with a different spirit. A different outlook. Spirit with a small s. We do not travel, says Paul, with a spirit of fear. Always falling back into great and terrible fear. We travel, he says, and I love this phrase... We travel with the spirit of adoption. The spirit of adoption. Whereby we know with certainty and with joy that God travels with us, not as judge, but as Father, Papa. And he will bring us home to that final and eternal happiness Fear, guilt, shame, uncertainty, they are horrible traveling companions. They will make you miserable. I myself, has, I have always preferred journeys made in hope and in joy and in confidence. And I can say with certainty, traveling with adoption papers, oh, it's a wonderful gift because I know that firsthand. I was adopted soon after my birth by a wonderful couple, Carl and Edna Easton. And when they stepped forward that day long ago, my future my life was changed by their love. And every step I have taken, even those in error, I have always been confident and assured knowing to whom I belonged and who it was that only and always wanted the very best for me. To this day, I take out those legal papers, those adoption papers, and just read them, and celebrate the life I have had, because I belonged to Carl and Edna Easton. You, dear people, you have your adoption papers as well. In your baptism, the deal was sealed. You became God's own sons and daughters, Paul says. Travel with those adoption papers. Travel with the certainty that you indeed belong to God, and that makes all the difference in the world and all the difference for your journey. He will, with His Spirit, Give to you all the good gifts you need to make your way into happiness. Good gifts for the journey. They are yours. So travel well, my fellow pilgrims. Travel well. Travel with joy in your hearts. Travel in confidence. Travel with a spring in your step. Travel knowing that the Spirit goes ahead of you. And travel not fearfully, but happily. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.